So I think we're going to see at that point some talk in Congress about defaulting on the debt. And, and that is you know, really crossing the Rubicon, as it were, in terms of the value of the dollar. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. As inflation continues at a 40-plus year high, it's time for an update on gold. Historically, one of, if not the most, trusted assets that investors turn to to protect the purchasing power of their wealth against the ravages of inflation. But frankly put, gold's had a lackluster performance so far this year, at least when priced in U.S. dollars. Why is that? And will it come to life if inflation persists from here? For answers to these questions, we turn to Brian London, editor of Gold Newsletter and producer of the excellent New Orleans Investment Conference. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Adam, a great pleasure as always. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, my pleasure. And it's fun that we've been finding ourselves uh, on Zoom a lot recently, whether it's in a webinar or a conference, whatever. But as much Brian London time as I can get, I'm, I'm going to take um, well, look, let's let's kick this off. I've got a bunch of specific questions for you, but but let's just start at the high level. What's your current assessment of the precious metals market today? Yeah, you know, you had a great introduction. The, 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 the performance of the metals this year has been somewhat disappointing when you think that we have so such strong tailwinds behind the market and so many factors that should be elevating the gold price. Um, and and there is an argument, though, that gold has kind of done its job by not dropping as much as other asset classes this year uh, in the face of a lot of things that have been going on. Um, typically and historically, gold performs well during Fed rate hike cycles. Uh, that seems a bit counterintuitive, but the record is clear. And in fact, it had started a, a brief rally in anticipation of the Fed rate hikes before Putin invaded Ukraine, sent the price soaring, and then uh, as that geopolitical issue kind of came off the boil, at least in the investment markets, uh, the gold price came back down and gained momentum to the downside, just as we started to realize how serious uh, Jerome Powell and company were as far as rate hikes. So I think there was a lot of noise put into the signal that is historically positive for gold. And we kind of suffered along. Uh, right now, we're in a position where gold looks like it posted a, uh, a typical summertime bottom around the third week of July. And it was rising from that bottom, had a bit of a setback over the last week or so. And as we speak, has enjoyed a couple of days of, uh, of price gains again. I would note that, that the recent rises the last couple of days have come on the back of not much factual information or data that would be deemed bullish or excessively bullish for gold. So that's a good sign to me, but, but we'll see. Um, longer term, I think we're looking at perhaps a turnaround this fall, maybe October or November, uh, when I think the, the, a lot of pressures are going to start to come on the Fed to, if not actually pivot, then at least take its foot off the gas on the, on the rate hike situation. So my question here is, um, you know, what's driving the price of gold right now, or what do you see as the key drivers? Uh, clearly, as you said, Russia, um, we had the crisis trade send a bunch of capital into gold. That's kind of come out. Uh, the Fed rate hikes presumably have 
you know, people tend to, I know you said history kind yeah. of kind of intuitively shows that gold actually tends to perform, perform well in rate hike um, eras, but, but most people's mindset is higher rates um, raise the, the real interest rate and therefore that's negative for gold. Um, so anyways, gold is, hopefully it's put in the bottom, like you mentioned, but it's, it's kind of hanging out right now from here. Um, what is going to drive the price of gold? Do you think, is it mostly going to be fed policy? And and I do want to get to your reasons for why you think there might be a pause or a pivot coming up. Cause I know yeah. you've got a pretty interesting thesis there, but is it pretty much all fed driving the price of gold right now? Or are there other key factors going on? Yeah, I, I think it is Fed policy. And in fact, Fed policy is driving all the markets and has driven all the markets, I guess, increasingly so since 2008. Um, but it's really a cycle that began with Volcker when he started to lower rates again after killing off inflation. We've seen an, uh, a progress in the market, 40 plus year bull market in bonds, but also a 40 plus year uh, success of successively lower interest rates of the Fed lowering interest rates in response to any kind of a slowdown in the economy and then failing to really normalize rates or get them past the midpoint of the previous range. So it's been a stair-step pattern ever lower on interest rates until we're bouncing around along zero now. Um, and the record shows that at some point the Fed's going to have to return to zero because the markets, all of the markets, are addicted to this easy money. And really, my argument has been that the, the markets are not addicted to easy money, but they're addicted to ever easier money. So whatever the Fed does to get us out of the next crisis, uh, which it will, which is coming at some point, um, they're going to have to do more than they ever did before. They're going to have to be much more dramatic, much more uh, to a greater degree, and much more quickly than they did before. All right. So I, I want to talk in just a second about what a, a pivot could look like um, mm -hmm. uh, in the Fed returning to do more maybe than it's ever done in the past. But but real quick, um, <clears throat> you know, you and I have known each other for many years, Brian. Um, there's a lot of people in the gold community that, you know, follow you and you, you know well how they think. And in a lot of their minds, they were looking at what the central banks have been doing over the past decade, everything you just described and saying, you know, this is going to come back to haunt us. You know, at some point, the central banks are going to succeed in hitting their inflation targets and probably going way beyond given, you know, all, all the balance sheet expansion that they're doing. Um, and uh, and we kind of got that this year. <laughs> we really kind of got what these guys were dreaming for. Uh, and yet gold hasn't reacted the way that they thought. So you, you sort of described the action this year, but just kind of fundamentally, why do you think gold has not uh, reacted the way that the gold community, you know, if you had told them a year or two ago, this is what's going to happen, they, they would be rubbing their hands together saying, okay, finally, that long-term investment is going to really pay off for me. Yeah, well, I, I think the question isn't what gold has done, but why hasn't it continued to rise? If you look at what it did post, uh, you know, when COVID first hit, uh, the price soared and we went over $2,000 an ounce and um, and gold, I think at that time, I mean, there is an argument that gold is not, it's not that it's not responding, but it had already responded and that it kind of looked ahead and saw what was going to be the result of all this fiscal stimulus, all of this uh, really dramatic uh, policy prescriptions that the Fed immediately instituted as COVID hit. And of course, that 
that reaction would be uh, inflation, which is just what we got. This time, as opposed to post-2008, there was a great fiscal response and, and all of the money wasn't tied up within Wall Street and just right. bail out Wall Street. It actually went into bank accounts. You know, it, it turns out that unlike what Bernanke's prediction, we didn't need helicopters to deliver the money. We could just press a few keystrokes and deliver it right into bank accounts. Right. We, you know, we just needed the postal service to send the checks. Yeah, that's all. That's all. I mean, it was it was monetary adrenaline directly injected into the veins of the consuming public uh, and for the purpose of increasing aggregate demand and purchasing, et cetera, et cetera, to keep the economy going. And lo and behold, it worked. And it worked in the face of supply shortages and um, uh, you know, su supply disruptions, supply chain disruptions. And that did have a big effect on inflation and it was a big factor, but it wasn't, certainly it wasn't the only factor. And you know, Adam, you and I are on financial, social uh, media, you know, uh, uh, Twitter primarily, and we see how many, how uh, a lot of pundits are blaming all of this on supply chain disruptions. And nobody other than that cadre of really smart people that you and I follow on Twitter, um, nobody else out there is really blaming the spending the fiscal spending. I mean, you don't see that on mentioned on CNBC anywhere. And it's absolutely amazing. And it's so obvious to us, that's what happened. Um, and it's going to continue to happen. I mean, we were talking with uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth yesterday, and, and she made a great point that the political situation is going to change and that we're going to get some gridlock and we may not see the same kind of fiscal stimulus that we had seen before when the Democrats really controlled everything. And that's going to be a factor. But by the same token, we've seen a lot of factors that have yet to even impact the CPI and inflation. We haven't seen wages hit. We're going to continue to see uh, food prices hit. And the big danger that the Fed uh, was really fearful of is inflation expectations becoming anchored in the public consciousness. And that's surely happened right now. Um, and th so they're changing their spending habits. They're going to demand more in wages, et cetera. And we're going to get these vicious cycles uh, ongoing. So all of that's a long way of saying, yeah, I think that uh, inflation has peaked at least for this cycle or this wave, but we're still going to have lingering higher inflation of five to 6%. And we're still going to have negative real rates. Uh, and once the Fed starts to lay off of these rate hikes, then we'll see that direction of, of real rates uh, go more negative again and dip down again. And I think that'll be bullish for gold. As okay. As, you know, excuses for why gold hasn't performed, you know, it's done a whole lot better than, than most other things. Yeah, yeah. And even when gold was, um, I think it's down you know, a couple of percentage points since the beginning yeah. of the year right now. But even when it was flat, um, you know, a few months back, you know, flat's a hell of a lot better than down 20% or whatever the S&P was down, right? And of course, NASDAQ was down more and a lot of individual stocks in both indices were down an awful lot more. So yeah, I don't want to diminish the fact that gold's been a good protector of, of capital this year. Um, it just hasn't been the you know, outperformer during inflation that that a lot of people had the thesis going forward. But I think what you're saying is, is, hey, don't make that decision, the final decision yet, because 
we were likely to get another chapter in the story when the Fed reverts back to an easing cycle while inflation isn't fully brought under control. And that's going to create some additional persisting hot inflation and gold may come back to life then. Yeah. And, and we need to realize too, that the price of gold is set every day on the Western futures exchanges, futures and options on COMEX. And these traders are, you know, they're very trigger happy. They're not looking the, uh, very far down the road. Um, and what they're looking for is what are the next headlines? What's the next thing that they can uh, bet on that they can trade on? When the Fed is anticipating uh, raising rates, when they're looking for the, 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 the initial Fed rate hike, that's the bet, that's the trade. And when the Fed starts to raise rates, you know, they, uh, these, the traders have, having bought the rumor, now sell the news and move on to the next thing. And what the next thing they're looking for is when is the Fed going to stop raising rates? That's going to be the next big pivot point. So they start to trade in anticipation of that. I think what we're seeing now in gold in that coming off of what appears to be a midsummer bottom, I think that's traders betting on what happens next. Um, and we all know the, the, the Fed will continue raising rates up to a point. But what the market's looking for now is that turnaround. Uh, what's going to happen when the Fed stops raising rates? Okay. And I, I think that's only a couple of months away at most. All right. And I want to get to that right now. So um, that obviously has been the big question, you know, for the past since the Fed started hiking rates back in February is how long are they going to be able to, to, to hike them? Um, and at this point, this is my interpretation. You might have a different one. I think the Fed is going to hike rates as high as it can for as long as it can, uh, because it wants to get as much altitude as it can in the interest rates to be able to start lowering them. You know, if the economy really does get into trouble uh, from here, and it looks like it's on a pretty negative trajectory. You know, obviously, two quarters of contraction already this year, and Q3 growth not looking great. Um, Danielle said in our our webinar yesterday that uh, the 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 most accurate predictor of Q3 GDP is, you know, it's, it's like zero point something low right now. Um, so uh, so you know, there's one school of thought that says, okay, they're just going to keep hiking for as long as they can get away with, and you know, if with inflation at eight eight and a half CPI at eight and a half percent, that's still a really big inflation problem. Um, the markets are. Yeah, they've had a bad start to the year, but they have rallied over the past, you know, pretty hard over the past month and a half, the past couple of days, you know, exception. Um, but the markets aren't breaking uh, and unemployment is down near record lows still. And so those are three of the real big, you know, indicators that the Fed looks at. And, and they're all pretty much saying, hey, keep hiking, guys, you got plenty of room here. So you have that on one side, but then you have some real constraints on the other that that could force the Fed to stop. And a lot of people say the Fed's going to hike until, quote unquote, something breaks. Um, you've got, I think, a, a thesis for what could be a pretty big limiter that might force them to, if not pivot, to at least pause in just a couple of months, meaning, you know, two to three months. Can you elaborate on what that is? Yeah, you know, I've done a good bit of work and have talked uh ad nauseum about this, about the size of the debt and how limiting that is. You know, we talked with Danielle and her point was essentially, although she didn't use these words, that Powell may in fact have the cojones that Volcker had to, uh, to crater the economy in, the, in a spike for inflation. And my argument has been that with debt this high, 
uh, he just doesn't have the toolbox that Volcker had. Because when Volcker was operating, the, uh, the, the debt to GDP was about 30%. Federal debt was about 30, 35% of GDP. Now it's 130 to 135% of GDP. And when debt gets that large, you simply cannot raise rates, at least, uh, and certainly you can't raise rates above the rate of inflation, which is what you really need to do to kill off inflation, because the costs of servicing the debt soar. And one of the points I've been making is that it's already started to soar. If you look at the quarterly numbers from the Federal Reserve on interest payments, they've already just gone uh, hyperbolic and soared to $600 billion a year, uh, well above where it was even pre-pandemic. Uh, so now they're, raised, they're rising very quickly. And even so, right now, because these are quarterly numbers, they're only factoring in the first one or two rate hikes that the Fed instituted. They're, they're not yet factoring in uh, these very aggressive rate hikes that are a multiple of the average you know, uh, degree and, and rapidity of rate hikes in any previous Fed rate hike uh, cycle. So the Fed is increasing rates much more quickly than it ever has before, two to three times more quickly than it, than it, it, it has on average. And the federal debt at this point is close to four times as large as it was during the last time that the Fed began raising rates around 2015. So the effect is going to be really dramatic. We're just starting to see that right now. And yet very few people have noticed it uh, as of yet. I think that uh, when we get the next quarter's numbers in, we're going to see how much more quickly and how uh, these costs have soared, how high they have soared and the trajectory that they're on. And I think that's gonna be a headline issue at some point over the next couple of months, probably around October or November or so. Um, and, and I think that's really gonna stop the Fed. That's gonna be the issue that forces the Fed to start laying off. You know, if, if we look at the political situation, we're on a trajectory right now to where annual interest uh, costs on the federal debt are going to get past a trillion dollars a year. I think that's that's a, a line in the sand politically. I think once you get to those levels, you're going to see the the squad in, in Congress. You're going to see AOC. You're going to see Elizabeth Warren uh, and other like-minded politicians talking about why are we spending this much money for these fat cat investors to China, et cetera. Why are we throwing all this money out there that could be used for canceling student debt, uh, universal basic income, uh, other entitlements and handouts, instead of just mortgaging our children's future? Um, so I think we're going to see at that point some talk in Congress about defaulting on the debt. And, and that is you know, really crossing the Rubicon, as it were, in terms of the value of the dollar in the whole financial system. And I think that's going to be something that's gonna cause the Fed to, uh, uh, to stop, frankly. Okay, so um, uh, just to kind of boil down, uh, the, the cost of servicing the debt uh, is increasing so rapidly because the Fed is raising the federal uh, Fed funds rate, yeah. <clears throat> but at the fastest rate that it ever has on, on record here. 
And so, um, you know, the, the government brings in income every year and a good chunk of that income today is going out to pay the debt service. But you're saying that that debt service payment is going to be is, is currently ratcheting up at a really alarming pace. And so yeah. more and more of the income that's coming in is being paid off in debt service. So we talked briefly about this yesterday in the webinar, Brian, that there's actually sort of like a double shotgun of bad news, bad news here, right? Which is, yes, you have the interest rates payment, uh, interest rate, the, the debt service going up. Um, but as the economy continues to slide into recession um, and the cost of capital goes up, um, you know, you're having corporations getting pinched. Um, both by the cost inputs from inflation, but also the rising cost of capital. Uh, you have consumer households getting pinched because they're feeling the same pressures. And obviously, as they tighten their belts, corporations make less. And so that compresses their profits even more. Corporations then at some point, when it gets bad enough, have to start laying off people. Um, that impacts consumer spending even further. Uh, and so the big point, oh, and you may actually have a, a, a you know, a, well, mathematically as corporate profits are coming down, you should have stock prices coming down as well along with them. So all of those things that I just listed there, they conspire to reduce tax receipts that the government brings in, right? So I mentioned you have, it has income coming in and more and more that's coming to, to having to pay off the debt. Well, if that income starts going down, and those debt payments are continuing to rise, then you get into real trouble fast in the government. So mm -hmm. I assume that this sort of this adds extra validation to your theory that this is becoming a really bad problem that the Fed is probably going to have to stop uh, its rate hikes at some point to address. Yeah. And if you want to depress our audience even further, as those tax receipts fall, I mean, we are in a deficit spending situation. So if you're having to if you're already having trouble paying off the interest on your debt uh, and you're already spending in a deficit type situation, the only way to pay that interest is to borrow more. So you're borrowing more to pay off the interest on the debt you already have. So those borrowings just add to the debt and you're having to borrow ever greater amounts. So it is the, the classic debt spiral that would in a private commercial situation uh, result in a rapid bankruptcy. Um, it doesn't do that in government or with the federal government because they don't operate by those rules. But let's keep in mind that this process has been going on for 40 or 50 years. So the water is circling the drain right now and it's circling the drain much more quickly. Um, that's what happens when you get to the, to the bottom. And we are in the end game of this multi-decadal cycle. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've said, I don't know where we go from here very specifically. We're painting a lot of different scenarios, but I, it's really hard to imagine a scenario going forward where gold and silver are going to be worth less than they are now, considerably less over the longer term. Um, and it is very easy to imagine that it'll be absolutely necessary for people to be positioned in these assets, as well as other tangible assets to protect their wealth through what we see coming ahead. Um, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be from an investment decision standpoint, a slam dunk that you wanna be in the sector going forward. All right, well, look, I don't wanna be overly simplistic about it, but sometimes it actually helps. So, um, you know, referring to your end game there, the government's really, they're faced basically with a binary choice in the scenario you laid out there, which is 
you know, we're sort of staring at at solvency risk or bankruptcy risk, we can do one of two things. We can default on the debt, right? Um, or we basically sacrifice the currency by printing a lot more currency uh, to, you know, service all the debts, right? So we, we, we meet them nominally. Um, and the U.S. does have a printing press. In fact, it has the most popular printing press in the world. It's still the world reserve currency. People want dollars. Um, so it seems like when faced with that binary choice, odds seem pretty good. They're probably going to pick the printing route. And of course, that's kind of the whole thesis behind owning precious metals is, you know, they retain their value versus all of that, that money debasement. Am I being overly simplistic or is that kind of the, the, the foundation no, that, of the thesis? <laughs> that is the foundational story. You know, depreciation is just a slow motion default. It's just easing the pain a bit over and spreading it out over time. Historians will look back uh, centuries from now and they will call what we're calling a depre depreciation, a default. Um, but that, that is the time honored uh, prescription that governments always choose. They have to depreciate the currency. And, and gold um, is not the perfect inflation hedge because it doesn't follow the CPI tick by tick. But what it does do is reacts when people, when people really get freaked out about what's going to happen to the purchasing power of their currency. Uh, when that happens, people rush to gold and gold makes up for lost time and really overshoots what would be an equilibrium level. I, I fairly confident that's what we're going to see over the next few years. Uh, one or two episodes like that where we get this really kind of, uh, you know, hyperbolic spike in the, the gold price as people truly become concerned about what's going to happen. And when that happens, then silver is going to follow, then mining stocks are going to, um, absent any kind of a situation like we had in 2008 when people were really not, uh, they were really worried about having anything in paper. Absent that kind of a frenzy, the mining stocks will follow gold higher and leverage those returns. So I, I think that's another area that's really a, a great one to get into now to kind of hedge against these uh, these macro issues we see coming up. Okay, I do have some questions for you about about mining, but real quick, just sort of on timing. Um, so let's say you're correct in that in three months, uh, the Fed announces a, a, a change in monetary policy. Um, and uh, I, I guess first is, uh, do you expect that reversal to be the moment that you mentioned earlier where you know the Fed it, its next easing stimulating cycle is even greater than what's come before? Um, or is that magnitude, that much larger magnitude uh, moment still further off in the future? I, I don't think necessarily because I think we'll still have high inflation and we'll have the Fed that will not be at least initially tightening anymore, raising rates anymore. And I think that will be enough to get gold and silver uh, rallying uh, fairly strongly and consistently. The, the Fed will not turn to these rescue measures um, like they did in 2008, 2009 or post COVID or in reaction to COVID unless we get that kind of a situation in case something breaks as we, we talk about. Um, and that would be, you know, 
the bond market breaking, there would be some kind of a severe correction in the stock market, that would be some sort of an economic slowdown or crisis. Um, that obviously, I think at this point, we know that another one of those is coming at some point. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, unprecedented events over just the last 12 years, um, you know, and we're going to have another one. And that's what's going to prompt the Fed to, to come in and rescue again and do more than they ever did before. That could come three, four months down the road. That could be a few years. But at this point, I think we're stuck in a cycle with uh, significantly higher inflation than we've seen over the past couple of decades and a Fed that is appreciated or recognized by the market as being really powerless to do anything about it. Okay, so um, just to sort of repeat what you said, you see uh, the pause slash whatever pivot the Fed does being you know, gold stimulative, um, but it's 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 not the it's not the moonshot to grab a bar hoard from the crypto sphere that we think the precious metals will will probably undertake at some point because that will happen more when something systemically breaks and the Fed and likely the other world central banks at the same time uh, just have to go hog wild to try to you know keep whatever conflagration from that's breaking out from from burning everything down. Yeah, yeah, but I would not underestimate how bullish just the Fed being recognized or um, as being unable to raise rates in an inflationary environment, how how bullish that will be for precious metals. Um, in, in fact, that will be something that can kind of separate the precious metals from, say, equities and bonds and the like, which have benefited from this this ever easier monetary policy and have traded in correlation with gold as everything else has by driven by easy money uh, uh, central bank policies. If the Fed is, uh, if we're in an inflationary environment, the Fed cannot raise rates, then that is something that is somewhat destructive to bonds and to equities. But it is very bullish for precious metals. So it is one of the scenarios going forward that would be um, yeah, you know, very, very positive for precious metals and associated investments and tangible assets in general. Yeah. And is a reason for that because that may be the moment where sort of the market just wakes up and says, look, the Fed's just not able to get inflation under control. It just can't hike for as high as is needed because it has all these other limiters that come into play. And therefore, if inflation is going to be higher kind of forever, we really need to start moving more of our capital into these assets that hold their purchasing power better. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to do something about the debt. And I don't know that there's anything they can do with the debt this high short of default. Even depreciation of the currency is a slow process. I mean, that's what civilizations throughout human history have done whenever they've been in a, a similar situation. But it is a slow process. If you want to depreciate away, you know, 50% of the debt, you have to endure 10 years of 8% inflation. Um, and that's a long time. I mean, that there's no central banker that's going to be left in their job by the end of that process. But still, easy money is what central bankers do because they fear the alternative, which is deflation slash depression, and they'll do anything in their power to avoid that. Um, so they will continue to uh, to choose the easy money route. You know, it, it the Fed thinks right now it can fight inflation. Maybe they 
they don't think it. Maybe it's a, a a game they're playing, a PR game. But at least the market, a substantial portion of the market, believes the Fed can fight inflation. At some point, uh, that will be very a very hard uh, view to hold because the the Fed will have to stop uh, raising rates, and and people will appreciate that they can't get rates high enough because of the debt. You know, I I look at it similar to a football team that is down by three touchdowns with 30 seconds left in the game and they've got the ball in their own 20, you know, what do they do? Do they risk getting anybody hurt or do they just take a knee? Um, I think at some point the market's going to say and the Fed is going to realize they've got to take a knee. You know, they can't fight inflation. Uh, they better focus on recession on the economy and they may not be able to do anything about that. But uh, if they progress along some of these other pathways, they're just going to get somebody hurt. Um, and raising rates into an economic slowdown is going to get a lot of people hurt. Okay. All right. Um, well, look, let's get to the specific assets we're talking about here, gold, silver, miners. Um, real quick, so uh, if, if, if things play out the way you think they will by the end of the year, um, how how much of an effect do you think it will have on gold and silver? You know, would we be heading into 2023, maybe back above $2,000 gold, more or less, just in terms of general magnitude? Yeah, it, it's certainly possible. You know, I've been in this business long enough not to give specific price predictions. Yeah. I, I can make myself look foolish in, in so many other ways. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think and I just pulled two thousand out because it was sort of where we were earlier this year. Yeah. Is it sort of like yeah, yeah, and it's very possible we we've, we've gotten there twice, you know, um, and to get there, once we get there, we we enter uncharted territory. It's um, it's certainly possible. Um, I would take and enjoy and appreciate it if we're only one hundred and fifty dollars higher than where we are now, but on an uptrend. I think that would be enough to to wake up obviously not just the metals markets, but uh, the mining share markets, because there are some bigger things out there. You know, it, it, for gold and silver, you've got really an incredible uh, monetary story, fundamental story uh, for higher prices. But if you get beyond gold and silver into the base metals and other commodities, you have a lot of other stories out there that seem to make it um, inevitable that we're going to see much higher prices. You know, you have the whole EV revolution and electrification uh, and the reshaping of our electric grid, the, the battery metals that will be necessary. Um, and supplies just aren't there to meet those demands. So I think we're going to enter a golden age, uh, no pun intended, for not just gold and silver, but commodities in general and tangible assets, because I don't see any way that we can get inflation down uh, you know, to 2% or anywhere near there over the long term. And I think we're going to have negative real rates and have to have negative real rates um, basically forever going forward. Wow. Um, okay. And on, I'm going to ask you a question about silver, but we can lump some of the other commodities in, in this as well, which is uh, what's, your, what's your outlook for silver, you know, kind of turning into 2023. And the reason why I, I, I give that specific timing is uh, to give it enough time to ride the bump that you think might come from the Fed changing policy. But also we might be 
really feeling the, the gale force winds of a recession by then, which may be pulling down on the commercial side of silver demand. So which yeah. one do you think is going to win out more? I, I think it's going to be a monetarily based bull market for gold. Um, I, I simplify the argument that if you like gold and you should, then you have to love silver because silver always follows gold higher in a uh, monetarily based bull market environment, which I, I which we have uh, directly ahead of us. I really discount, discount Adam, the uh, industrial demand story for silver. I recognize that solar is a special case and may create some supply constraints on silver going forward, but silver would be far less valuable, priced far lower today if it wasn't for its use as money or as a monetary metal. And that's where the bulk of its value lies. Um, industrial demand is, is not that great of an impact on the metal. 70% or more of silver production is as a byproduct of other metal production. Um, very few pure silver or primarily silver mines or, or production sources out there. So um, it is money that drives uh, gold, is silver's use as money, historical use as money that drives the price. So I don't see a recessionary slowdown in industrial demand if that's accompanied by the kind of policy prescriptions we're likely to see in that environment from the Federal Reserve and other central banks, then I think that's going to be very positive for silver. Okay. And then I'm just curious, how about other, other metals and, and, you know, hard assets? Um, do you expect there to be kind of a good buying opportunity for them perhaps next year as we go through, if we go through a, a strong or, you know, a, a powerful recession um, that just brings down consumer demand and provides an attractive entry point into these assets for the longer term potential that you were describing earlier? Uh, if we have a significant recession, uh, then the recession story, the recession theme drives down the commodities. But if you're looking at a longer term horizon, then current prices are a buying opportunity because copper, for example, I think is um, uh, very likely to double or more in price over the next five years. Because even without this EV story, even without all the, the green movement story for copper, we're still facing a, a secular uh, supply pinch for copper. We've had decades of underinvestment um, and just the baseline demand that we see right now and will see going forward, uh, the baseline demand will overwhelm the, the current supplies that are in sight and uh, from current mines and development, et cetera. And it takes a decade or more to bring a copper project, a new pro copper project into uh, production. So we're in a situation where we will need much, much higher prices to accelerate uh, more copper supplies onto the market. Um, so if you're looking at a three, the, the classic three to five year time horizon, I think buying copper companies um, right now at these prices is a great investment. Okay. So uh, we used the term in our discussion yesterday uh, that, that now may be a good accumulation period um, both for the precious metals and for the hard assets that you're talking about. Um, so just wanted to give you a chance to sort of uh, expound on that in any way you'd like to. 
Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we've been in this business a long time. We know we can't pinpoint the exact bottom, um, but we can look at things and say, that's a good value. This is a bottoming formation, or this is a buying area in terms of price. And I think that's where we are uh, in terms of all of these metals and the associated mining stocks. There, there are a lot of companies out there. There are a lot of uh, great projects that are, you know, they're on the clearance rack right now. And they may, they may be lower, they may the, be cheaper at some point in the future, but they shouldn't be a whole lot cheaper. Um, and the upside potential is, is exciting. There are companies now that are selling for a third or quarter of where they were selling in, you know, not a, a rollicking bull market, but just in a normalized market. And you can pick these things up and get that kind of three to four X potential betting on just a market normalization, not the kind of really uh, bullish market that we're anticipating. So the, that's a great risk reward scenario. So I, I think it's a great time to find those kinds of companies over now and over the next few months and just peck away at them. All right. So since you've been so focused on gold and silver in this conversation, um, I, I imagine what you just said applies to the gold and silver mining sector here, where you've got companies that were trading at much higher prices, you know, just two quarters ago, mm -hmm. um, but you think still have very good long-term prospects and, uh, and even just riding the normalization, like you said, could increase their share prices quite dramatically. Um, a, do you still feel that way? And B, I know we're getting a little bit low on time here, but are there any particular companies since you run the gold silver newsletter are any particular companies right now that you see as sort of shining under uh, shining undervalued uh, diamonds there uh yeah there are a bunch i mean there are some silver plays i like um uh i like uh Beesless silver i don't own that um i like uh, blackrock silver i do own that one um i like cassiar gold uh at current levels you know Adam at last year's New Orleans Investment Conference, that was a big pick of mine uh, and a few other people. And I forget what it did post that event. I think it doubled or tripled, at least doubled, maybe tripled. Yeah. And I remember it had a pretty big jump right after the event. So I think a lot of people took good notes and ran out and bought it. Yeah, they did. And, um, and it's right back to those levels again. Um, so that gives you the kind of potential uh, that these companies can have. And you know they've got a great project uh, and they've got a lot of drilling going on. So it, it's another one where you have established resources selling at a discount. I should mention I own that stock as well. Um, and there's a bunch more of those, um, but, but there's a few right there that I think are really undervalued right now in terms of what they have. And the reason why they're on uh, the clearance rack is typically is kind of the typical summertime bottom that we see uh, in, in a lot of years, uh, and also because the broader market is down over a longer cycle where, where we have a, a long-term cycle and a short-term seasonal cycle that are kind of in sync right now in creating a, a rare bargain opportunity to, to buy great companies for a fraction of what they were selling for not that long ago. Okay. Um, so that sounds really, um, uh, sounds really intriguing for folks that are interested in, putting capital into the space or putting more capital into the space. 
One question for you is, you know, obviously a reason probably why they're down in addition to what you just mentioned is, is the, the prices, the metals are down a bit uh, from where they were trading two quarters ago. Um, but input costs are up. And I'm just curious how much of that is a factor here. You know, energy costs have gone up a lot. Labor costs are going up. Um, how material is that in the mining industry? It's, it's very important. Um, and it's a factor that first surfaced in 2009 when for the first time really ever uh, we had the gold miners that couldn't keep up with the price of gold itself because oil shot up to $140 a barrel and uh, it takes a lot of diesel to move those big yellow trucks so margins were compressed. We're seeing that starting to happen in the big producers right now and, and I think there's you know some concern or bears watching in that respect, um, as margins get compressed, you need to look at the quarterlies from these big mining companies, see how they're all in sustaining costs of production have risen um, and what their margins are. Uh, so we've seen some of that, but also there've been a couple of years now where the big miners have just made money hand over fist. So they're really cash rich right now. They're certainly uh, not in any danger of going under um, it's just less of a good thing at this point. That wasn't the same situation we had back in 2009. The big miners are a lot uh, healthier right now. We tend to focus in my publication and gold newsletter on more of the junior end of the scale where it really doesn't hit. Uh, these are explorers, developers. They're looking for projects. They're developing projects. The cost of production um, will factor into their valuations somewhat, but generally speaking, it's going to be a problem for somebody else down the road who eventually acquires those projects. Okay. And turns it into an operating mind. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Well, look, um, Brian, thank you so much for giving us the current real-time lay of the land in this sector. I know we have a lot of viewers that follow the sector closely and, and own the precious metals either directly and or own mining shares on top of that. So thanks very much. Um, I want to get to the question about for, for people who have enjoyed listening to you, where can they go to learn more about you and your work? Um, but why don't we start with the big near-term opportunity to do that, which is to go to your New Orleans investment conference. Um, can you just share the details here with folks? Yeah, it's October 12th to 15th. I think it's going to be a blockbuster event this year. You know, we're, we're kind of known for having blockbuster events with great speakers. And we're having them again this year. A lot of the ones we had last year that were so popular and impressive. Um, but it's a unique event, as you know, um, from being there. It's, it's a place where you have uh, a, a dozens of the top uh, commentators and analysts in the markets today. Some, a lot of the people that we're fo we follow on financial Twitter and social media and, and in the broader financial media where you can talk to them in person, you can get your questions asked. And just as importantly, you can talk with a lot of other investors uh, in the seats next to you who are uh, almost by definition, really smart, really successful, and, and uh, looking for their own sources of information and willing to share their ideas. So it's an elite gathering of, of smart investors and brilliant minds on the stage. And we, we have a just a stupendous lineup again this year. 
headlined by Adam Taggart himself, of course. <laughs> You're kind. Uh, folks, indeed, I will be there. And I, I have gone for many, many years and, and can easily say if you're going to go to an you know, in-person conference uh, in the space, this is the one to go to. Brian is, I think, understating the value that you get, not just from hearing the brilliant speakers speak at the stage, but by being able to go up to them afterwards in the hallways, at meals, in the bar later at night. Uh, and engage with them and, you know, hear from the horse's mouth answers to whatever questions are most important to you. And also the point about, you know, the other conference goers there. I mean, how often do we get to be in a room, you know, with a bunch of people who actually are like-minded like us and want to talk about these issues, many of which a lot of people don't want to talk about at the average cocktail party. Uh, so it really is a phenomenal experience. I am going to be moderating a few panels. Much smarter people than I are actually going to be the people on stage uh, giving the presentations. Um, but yeah, yes, Brian, uh, I, I, I cannot encourage people to go enough. A uh, couple quick things. One, can you tell them where to go to learn more about the conference? Yeah, neworleansconference.com. Very simple, neworleansconference.com. You can see our entire list of speakers there, and I should mention a few of them that we're going to have. Uh, that was my next question, so go ahead. Okay, there. I'm, uh, I, I had a feeling you were going to go there, but I wasn't sure, so I had to make sure <laughs> we had it covered. Uh, we've got Jim Grant. We've got Jim Rickards. We've got Danielle DiMartino Booth. We've got George Gammon, Doug Casey, Jim Urio, Rick Rule, Brent Johnson. Dominic Frisbee, Tavi Costa, John Nigerian, Peter Bookvar, Lawrence Lepard, Dave Collum, Jim Stack, um, and it goes on and on. I mean, I could read off, I've got a list in front of me, dozens more of, of top, uh, you know, the best minds, I think, out there today. You know, I, like you, am a uh, kind of a fanboy of a lot of the really smart people out there now who are... Uh, in this kind of counterculture of alternative financial media and, uh, and, and with different takes that you're not going to see on CNBC and the like. Um, and I've just gone out and gotten all of the best ones out there that I can get. All, all of the people I really know after decades in this business are, are really smart in giving insights that are valuable. Some insights I don't agree with, but if they're well thought out, and they make a good case, and it's important to bring that in front of my attendees, you know, they're here, they're there, and you're going to get to see them. Well, you know, one of my one of my early mentors um, said something that really stuck with me um, that I think particularly relates to conferences like yours, Brian, which is what's the price of a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, you know, the cost of your of your conference is, I think, in the hundreds of dollars. And uh, correct me if that's wrong, but I believe it is. And when you think of even if you just leave with one good idea, that enables you to up the game of your investing strategy. Um, you know, it can be worth orders of magnitude of that over the course of, of your investing uh, lifetime. And so not only do you go have the great experience you know, that, that we've just been talking about, but the, the financial returns can be just, you know, incredibly dramatic. Yeah, and, and these are the places where I've found the, the most valuable nuggets that I've taken with me. So, um, uh, look, folks, go uh, to uh, neworleansinvestmentconference.com, right? I got it right? That's it. Okay. And we'll put the URL up on the screen here when we talk about it. And Brian, if you don't mind, I'm just going to do a quick plug uh, for Wealthion's conference for our viewers here too. Yeah. Um, we do a conference. Ours is 
online. So Brian's is in person. Um, so if you can't make his in person, or if you just can't get enough of this macro content, uh, go check us out at wealthion.com slash conference. Um, ours is in September. Um, similar in mission and theory. What's interesting, Brian, is last year, we had a lot of overlap in the speakers of our conferences, which I think was great. It was great to hear what they said at your conference and great to hear what they said at mine. We have a fact, we have very little overlap this year in faculties, which I think is is uh, exciting both for me to be able to be in both places, but I think for folks that that uh, you know choose to go to both, um, they're going to find uh, that they get you know basically twice the brain power this year around. So um, should be very interesting. But uh, folks, uh, for the Wealthion conference, if you're interested, go check out wealthion.com slash conference soon, because our early bird price discount of around 30% ends in a week. Um, all right, Brian, anything else you want to say about your conference before we tell people about your newsletter? Well, I, I think that it's just another example of how smart you are and that you're having an online event with really a spectacular lineup of speakers and I'm green with envy about. Um, and you don't have to pay for open bars like I have to. <laughs> like By the same token, your attendees can sit in the, the comfort of their home and their lazy boys and enjoy all the content. So there's a great place for both, both events. Um, and, you know, I just, I, when I start writing some checks to the hotel for my event, I want you to look over my shoulder and, and confirm how smart you really are for having a virtual event. I appreciate uh, that. Although I will say, you know, on, on social media, I've shared some of my best moments uh, from attending conferences and some of the best ones were at the open bars at your conference. <laughs> so definitely folks, if you get a chance to be there, go there. Not only do you get uh, to put it on Brian's tab, but you know, you're rubbing shoulders with the Danielle DiMartino booths and Jim Grants of the world. It's really pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it is. And when you do go to the bar and rub shoulders or follow them, please don't put it on my tab. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough open bars elsewhere to do that. But yeah, it's both events are great. And you're doing a wonderful service of Wealthy On and with your event, Adam, to, to bring such um, really smart people and exposing them to, to our audiences. Uh, it's we're in a golden age of, of financial commentary and investment commentary where a lot of these people are available either in person or online. Um, and, you know, it's not just the value of a good idea and what you can make so many times above what you pay for uh, in terms of investing, but it's also what you can save too. Uh, we're in really risky times, right? with opportunity, uh, but also risk and saving what you have is vitally important. Um, so I would encourage everyone to, to attend both events and uh, it's not really a lot of money when you consider the stakes involved. And for my commentary on the metals and the mining stock markets, they can go to goldnewsletter.com. All right, great. Well, folks, uh, thanks so much for watching. Brian, thanks for giving so much of, of your time here. Just a reminder to folks that we are continuing our new practice of sharing uh, my key takeaways from these videos. So to get mine from this interview with Brian, just go to wealthion.com slash Adam's notes, and you can read them there for free. And if you'd like to see, if you've enjoyed having Brian on here, you'd like to see him and other great guests like him continue to appear on this program please just help support us by hitting the like button. And then if you haven't already, clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. 
Brian, it's always a pleasure. Really looking forward to seeing you in New Orleans in October. And um, everybody else, thanks so much for watching.